Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Previously on Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. Good evening, my fellow citizens. This government, as promised, has maintained the closest surveillance of the Soviet military buildup on the island of Cuba. Within the past week, unmistakable evidence has established the fact that a series of offensive missile sites is now in preparation. You're listening to episode 213 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about the Cuban Missile Crisis that almost led to nuclear war in 1962. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Akin. Hey, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. Between 1947 and 1991, the world was locked in a decades-long confrontation between East and West. It was known as the Cold War, a terrifying stalemate that threatened to become World War III and devastate the globe with nuclear war. One of the most dangerous moments of the Cold War occurred in 1962, when it was discovered that the Soviet Union was placing nuclear missiles in Cuba, just 90 miles from the U.S. coast. The result was a 13-day international emergency known as the Cuban Missile Crisis. The key players were American President John F. Kennedy, Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev, and Cuban Prime Minister Fidel Castro. The fate of the world lay in the hands of these three men, and we came within a whisker of a nuclear war that would have killed a third of humanity. And that's what we'll be talking about in this episode of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. So, Jimmy, why did you want to do this mystery? Well, I've said for a long time that we'd be looking at some of the close calls uh, we've had with nuclear war on the program. I mentioned that as early as episode 12, which was on the Soviet doomsday machine known as Perimeter or the Dead Hand. And the Cuban Missile Crisis is one of the times that we did come closest to nuclear war. Uh, Some argue that it's the closest we ever came, though that's debatable. Uh, However, that may be, we did come extremely close, much closer than was even known at the time. Um, And I originally planned to cover this story in October, which will be the 60th anniversary of the Cuban Missile Crisis. But with the war in Ukraine and all the nuclear saber saber rattling that Russian leader Vladimir Putin has been doing, I decided to move it up. How will we be proceeding on this topic? Well, it's been a while since we did a two-part look at a mystery, but this is a big story. It is a global crisis with a lot of moving parts. It's also a super dramatic story with a bunch of twists. So this will be a two-part episode. Today, we'll tell the story up to the worst day of the crisis. Uh, That day was so bad that the White House later named it Black Saturday. Next week, we'll tell you what happened on Black Saturday and how global thermonuclear war almost started three times in one day. Also, unlike many mysteries, this one has largely been solved. A lot of what we know now was completely secret at the time. And so, you know, it was a mystery to the world's population. But today it's largely been revealed. So what we'll do is walk through the crisis one step at a time, revealing both what was known then and what we've learned since. 
What are our sources of information about the Cuban Missile Crisis? We have documents that have been declassified, most of which are from American archives. So we know more about the crisis from the American perspective than the Soviet or Cuban perspectives. But a lot of people who were involved uh, with the crisis later wrote memoirs of what had happened, you know, from their viewpoint. And that includes the Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev and Cuban leader uh, Fidel Castro. The American leader, John F. Kennedy, never got to write memoirs after his presidency because he was assassinated a year after the Cuban Missile Crisis in November of 1963, as we talked about in episode 15 on the JFK assassination. However, his brother, Robert F. Kennedy, also known as Bobby Kennedy and RFK, was the attorney general at the time, and he did write a memoir of the crisis. It was published in 1969, and it's called 13 Days, after how many days it took for the crisis to resolve. For a long time, 13 Days was the most detailed account of the crisis available both to the public and to historians. Um, So it's had an enormous influence on how the crisis has been remembered and envisioned by historians. It was also the basis of a movie, also called 13 Days, that came out in the year 2000. And that's a good movie. It's a, you know, it's a docudrama, a recreation of the 13 Days. And it's it's a good movie. So I recommend that. I also recommend Dr. Strangelove or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb, which is a dark comedy on essentially the same thing, theme. But there's a problem with the book uh, that the movie is based on. Robert Kennedy was assassinated in 1968 during his campaign to become president. And we'll definitely talk about that in the future. The book didn't come out until after his death. But like you'd expect of a politician, he slanted things to make himself look good. So a good bit of what he says about the Cuban Missile Crisis actually is, is misrepresentation. In his book, The Cuban Missile Crisis and American Memory, Sheldon Stern, a historian at the Kennedy Library, writes, A half century after the event, it is surely time to document once and for all that RFK's 13 days cannot be taken seriously as a historical account of the XCOM meetings. And it isn't just the book, 13 Days. Other participants in the event later wrote self-serving accounts of what they and others did as well. Are we able to correct for these self-serving distortions? We are because of something that John F. Kennedy himself did. Uh, As we now know, President Richard Nixon wasn't the only president with a secret taping system installed in the White House. We talked about Nixon's back in Episode 7 on the Watergate scandal. uh, But it turns out Nixon's predecessor, Lyndon B. Johnson, also had a secret taping system. And Johnson's predecessor, John F. Kennedy, did as well. Uh, JFK used his secret taping system to record conversations in the White House during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Originally, these conversations were classified, but as a historian in the Kennedy Library, Sheldon Stern listened to all of them during the declassification process, and he's used them as a key source for his books. Today, the tapes are available online for free, and we'll have a link to where you can access them. But the bottom line is, we have audio records of exactly what was being said at the White House during the Cuban Missile Crisis. So we can correct the self-serving stories that Bobby and other Kennedy administration officials told later on. 
And we'll be doing that as we go along. And we'll then have an evaluation uh, of exactly what they were exaggerating. Uh, we'll have an evaluation of exactly what they were exaggerating or misrepresenting. What do we need to say to set the stage for the Cuban Missile Crisis? What, what led up to it? At the end of World War II, four nations, America, Britain, France, and the Soviet Union, took charge of, of German territory and began denazifying and rebuilding it. For administrative purposes, they divided Germany into four zones, each of which was run by one of the four powers. They also divided Germany's capital, Berlin, into four districts. Eventually, the three parts of Germany controlled by America, Britain, and France merged to become the nation of West Germany, and the three parts of the capital they controlled became West Berlin. But the Soviets used their influence to keep their sectors separate. The Soviet sector of the country uh, became the nation of East Germany, and the Soviet sector of the capital became East Berlin. The situation of West Berlin was particularly precarious because it was located in East German territory, and it was connected to West Germany only by narrow highway and railroad links. So it was a little island of democracy in a sea of territory controlled by the Soviets, and it became a, a Cold War flashpoint. Between 1948 and 1949, the Soviets cut off the routes into and out of West Berlin, they blockaded it, forcing the Allies to airlift supplies to sustain the population of West Berliners in an operation known as the Berlin Airlift. Another crisis occurred in 1958 and 1959, but President Dwight D. Eisenhower showed such resolve that Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev backed down. The same year, 1959, revolutionary leader Fidel Castro took control in Cuba and began moving it into the Soviet sphere. This was regarded in America with great alarm. The idea of having a communist state in the Western Hemisphere was considered unacceptable. Not only could it serve as a platform for exporting communism to Central and South America, but Cuba is just 90 miles off the Florida coast and could be used as a launching point to attack the United States. So President Eisenhower, um, or I should say under President Eisenhower, plans begin to be drawn up for how to deal with Cuba and get rid of Fidel Castro's government. In 1960, an American presidential election was underway, and John F. Kennedy was facing Vice President Richard Nixon. The election was extremely close, and there's evidence that the election may have been stolen by voter fraud in Illinois and Texas, uh, something that we'll look at in a future episode. One of the issues Kennedy ran on was the existence of what was called a missile gap between the U.S. and the USSR. The idea was that the Soviets had way more nuclear missiles than we did, and we needed to build more missiles to close the gap so that the Soviets didn't have us at a strategic disadvantage. We now know that the missile gap didn't exist. In fact, it was really a reverse missile gap. We had way more nuclear missiles than the Soviets. But that wasn't known at the time. And Kennedy portrayed himself as a tough, cold warrior and campaigned on the missile gap. You know, I'm the strong man. I'm going to build us more missiles so we'll be able to stand toe-to-toe -to, -toe to the Soviets. But not everyone was convinced that Kennedy was as tough as needed to deal with the Soviets. And that impression received a huge boost 
his first year in office. Shortly after Kennedy assumed the presidency in January 1961, he approved a CIA-backed plan to use former Cuban exiles to overthrow the communist government of Fidel Castro. But Kennedy was only willing to go so far in supporting this plan. And in April 1961, the invasion failed resulting in a fiasco that's known as the Bay of Pigs, which we'll also talk about in the future. The result was that Kennedy's partial support for the Bay of Pigs, but not total support, made him look weak. And Premier Khrushchev concluded he was weak. So after the failure of the Bay of Pigs invasion, Kennedy wanted to meet with Khrushchev as soon as possible. And so they had a summit meeting in Vienna, Austria on January 4th, 1961. How did that meeting go? Uh, Not at all well. Wikipedia explains. In retrospect, the summit may be seen as a failure. The two leaders became increasingly frustrated at the lack of progress at the negotiations. Kennedy later said of Khrushchev, he beat the hell out of me and told New York Times reporter James Scotty Reston immediately afterwards, it was the worst thing in my life. He savaged me. One of the reasons it may have gone so badly is the fact that Kennedy was being treated by Dr. Max Jacobson, who we talked about back in episode 18 as Kennedy's secret Dr. Feelgood. Uh, Before and during the meeting with Khrushchev, Kennedy received, uh, reportedly received three injections from Jacobson, that contained methamphetamines. At, his, at one point, his speech was slurred, and he was in no condition for the meeting. However that may be, the summit meeting left Khrushchev with the impression that Kennedy was a weak and inexperienced leader, and that emboldened Khrushchev and may have contributed to the missile crisis. It also contributed to a new crisis in West Berlin. The Soviets demanded that all military forces be withdrawn from West Berlin, and when the Western powers didn't comply, Khrushchev initiated the building of a wall that encircled West Berlin in August 1961. The Berlin Wall further isolated West Berliners, and it also prevented East Germans from escaping to the West. They would shoot you if you tried to climb over the wall. And there was a lot of concern that the Soviets would eventually try to simply take West Berlin and maybe even invade West Germany. Kennedy's reaction to the Berlin Wall, as well as the Bay of Pigs fiasco, convinced Khrushchev that he was a weak and indecisive leader. Kennedy also realized that he had lost face on the world stage, and Khrushchev and Castro believed he was likely to try to regain face by attacking Cuba again. They were right to be concerned because that's exactly what Kennedy was planning to do. In March 1962, the American Joint Chiefs of Staff proposed uh, a plan to Kennedy called Operation Northwoods, which would have involved a false flag terrorist attack or series of attacks on U.S. soil to serve as a pretext for invading Cuba. Ultimately, Kennedy said no to Operation Northwoods, but we talked about it back in episode 151, so you can go back and listen for the details. Also, in November 1961, Kennedy approved a plan of the CIA known as Operation Mongoose. It involved using terrorist attacks, covert operations, and assassination attempts to get rid of Castro and his government. And concerning 1962, the year of the Cuban Missile Crisis, Wikipedia explains, 
In January 1962, U.S. Army General Edward Lansdale described plans to overthrow the Cuban government in a top-secret report, partially declassified in 1989, addressed to Kennedy and officials involved with Operation Mongoose. CIA agents or pathfinders from the Special Activities Division were to be infiltrated into Cuba to carry out sabotage and organization, including making radio broadcasts. In February 1962, the U.S. launched an embargo against Cuba, and Lansdale presented a 26-page top-secret timetable for implementation of the overthrow of the Cuban government, mandating guerrilla operations to begin in August and September. Open revolt and overthrow of the communist regime would occur in the first two weeks of October. Kennedy thus had plans on his desk for overthrowing the Cuban government in October 1962, the same month that the Cuban Missile Crisis happened. So Castro and Khrushchev were right to be concerned about the American empire striking back. What did they decide to do because of these concerns? Khrushchev decided to propose putting nuclear missiles in Cuba, and there were several reasons for this. One was that the missile gap between the USS between the U.S. and the USSR didn't exist, as we mentioned. The U.S. had way more intercontinental ballistic missiles or ICBMs than the Soviet Union did. In 1962, we reportedly had around 5,000 strategic nuclear warheads, whereas the Soviets had only 300. So we had 17 times as many nukes as they did. Worse for the Soviets, they reportedly only had 20 missiles capable of flying across the globe and hitting the U.S. In addition to having way more ICBMs than the Soviets did, America also had medium uh, nuclear range missiles much closer to the Soviet Union. Uh, we had missiles stationed in our NATO allies in Europe, and in particular, we had Jupiter-class missiles in Turkey, which shares a border with the Soviet Union. So uh, these missiles were on their doorstep, and if we launched them, the the Russian targets would be struck before they could respond. So the U.S. had the Soviets at a strate- at a significant strategic disadvantage. Why wasn't just building more intercontinental ballistic missiles to hit the U.S. a good solution for Khrushchev? Because the ICBMs they had weren't very reliable or accurate. And what they really needed was to get their own medium range and intermediate range missiles closer to the U.S. That way, Khrushchev could ensure mutually assured destruction. Now, what's mutually assured destruction? Well, it was a key concept uh, during the Cold War. It still is, but people talked about it a lot more back then. And in fact, people had been talking about it long before nuclear weapons were developed, but it became particularly important in this period. In the Cold War, the basic idea was that two parties can both be strong enough that it w- that if one attacks the other and destroys it, then the attacked party will still be able to launch a counterstrike that will destroy the aggressor. Uh, in this context, that would mean that if America attacked the Soviets and destroyed them, they would still have the strength to destroy us. And if they attacked and destroyed us, we would still have the strength to wipe out them in return. Both sides would thus know that if they struck first, it was assured that they would be destroyed as well. And since both sides were assured of this, it was known as mutually assured destruction. 
Of course, the initials of mutually assured destruction, M, A, and D, spell the word mad. And this irony was not lost on people at the time. Uh, the idea was that you'd have to be mad, meaning insane, to launch a first strike, knowing that you'd be assured of national destruction. And so you would be deterred from even trying. And it's been thought that the concept of mutually insured destruction was what kept nuclear war or part of what kept nuclear war from breaking out during the Cold War. Both sides were just too scared of starting one. And MAD continues to keep the peace today. For example, if Russia attacked America and managed to just to destroy most of our land-based facilities, our underwater fleet of submarines could still survive, would still survive, and could still launch enough missiles to destroy Russia, and vice versa if we attacked them. But in 1962, for MAD to deter a nuclear war, Khrushchev needed to have enough missiles that could accurately reach the U.S., and so he wanted to put some in Cuba. Yeah, he also saw a number of other benefits to doing so. One was that he really did want to get control of West Berlin. So he reasoned that if he put missiles in Cuba and Kennedy did nothing, that would confirm Kennedy's weakness, and he could later make a move on West Berlin. Or if Kennedy did respond to putting the missiles in Cuba, Khrushchev could offer to pull them out in exchange for West Berlin. Or another option, he could offer to pull the missiles out of Cuba if Kennedy would pull our missiles out of Italy and Turkey. And another bonus, having nuclear missiles in Cuba could deter the U.S. from trying to invade Cuba. And so it would give their Cuban allies more security. What did Fidel Castro think of this plan? It's not entirely clear. Um, at least his view of it at the beginning isn't clear. There are indications that a lot of Cuban leadership was enthusiastic about the plan, but there are also indications that Castro himself may not have been wild about it. According to one source, he thought that having Soviet missiles on Cuban soil would make Castro look like a Soviet puppet. Also, the plan carried a lot of risk. If America learned about the missiles before they were operational, it would result in an immediate invasion to stop them from being completed. Or even if they were completed, Kennedy might be even more determined to overthrow the Cuban government, either through surrogates like at the Bay of Pigs or through spies and assassins to take out Castro. Or worst case, Kennedy might simply invade Cuba despite the risk of nuclear war. However, by May 1962, Russian officials had uh, convinced Castro to accept the missiles, and so work on the project began in secret. How did the Soviets keep word from getting out? Every nation uses denial and deception when it's up to something it doesn't want other nations to know about. And in the Soviet Union in the 20th century, this became a military doctrine known as Maskarovka which means masking or disguise. And the Soviets really pulled out all the stops on Maskarovka this time. For a start, Khrushchev and other Soviet leaders didn't dictate the plans to secretaries for transcription. Instead, they wrote the plans out themselves by longhand on paper. They also named the project Operation Anadir. Anadir is a town in the ex in extreme northeastern Siberia. So if anybody heard about Operation Anadir, they'd think it was something going on in a near Arctic region within Russia. 
They then lied uh, to the troops that they were sending on the mission and told them they were going to a cold region, and they gave them winter gear, including ski boots and parkas to prove it, only to take them to the sun-drenched Caribbean instead. (laughs) And they labeled the 43,000 troops they eventually sent as agricultural specialists, irrigation specialists, and machine operators, making it look like they were on some kind of humanitarian mission. And they started arriving in Cuba by July 1962. Did the U.S. suspect anything was going on? Absolutely. The next month, August, our intelligence services started getting word of what was going on. This included messages uh, sent by dissidents in Cuba to Cuban exiles in the United States because the people in Cuba immediately noticed what was going on, including in the dead of night, these long cylindrical objects covered by tarps are being rolled through their towns on clumsy trucks. Um So they were seeing this stuff happening and they contacted their friends and relatives who were in exile in Miami, Florida, and provided hundreds of reports. On August 10th, CIA Director John McCone wrote President Kennedy a memo in which he said it looked like ballistic missiles were being built in Cuba. On August 31st, with the midterm elections coming up, Senator Kenneth Keating of New York warned on the Senate floor that it looked like the Soviets were building a missile base in Cuba. And so the matter was now in the public eye, and it became an issue in the 1962 midterm elections. In September, the first uh, missiles capable of carrying nuclear warheads started arriving in Cuba. But in keeping with the Maskarovka doctrine, Soviet officials repeatedly lied about this, saying that they were only giving Cuba Uh, defensive weapons, the kind that Cubans could use to defend themselves if invaded, but not offensive nuclear weapons. Khrushchev even sent Kennedy a note saying that they had no plans to put surface-to-surface missiles in Cuba. The denial and deception policy thus continued through October. What did U.S. officials do in response? As early as September, Air Force General Curtis LeMay had a pre-invasion bombing plan on Kennedy's desk. And on Sunday, October 14th, we resumed direct overflights of Cuba using our U-2 spy planes. The next day, Monday, October 15th, the National Photographic Interpretation Center at the CIA analyzed the photos and determined they did show medium-range ballistic missile bases were being constructed though they did not show operational nuclear missiles. That evening, National Security Advisor McGeorge Bundy and Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara was both briefed. And this brings us up to Tuesday, October 16th, the first day of the famous 13 days of the Cuban Missile Crisis. And before we start talking about those 13 days in October, we want to take a moment to thank our patrons who make the show possible, including Meta D, Fabian K, Joshua D, Carmen M, and Stephen R. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation at AaronV.com. A-A-R-O-N-V.com. Making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida. And 
by Catechism Class, a dynamic weekly podcast journey through the catechism of the Catholic Church by Greg and Jennifer Willits. It's the best book club, coffee talk, and faith study group all rolled into one. Find it in any podcast directory. Jimmy, let's talk about the famous 13 days. What happened on the first day, Tuesday, October 16th? In the morning, President Kennedy was briefed that we now had U-2 photographic evidence of medium-range ballistic missile bases in Cuba. Just before noon, President Kennedy assembled a group of 15 men to discuss the matter. These men included, included high-ranking officials such as his brother, Robert Kennedy, the Attorney General, Lyndon Johnson, the Vice President, Robert McNamara, the Secretary of Defense, John McCone, the CIA Director, and others. They would later be dubbed the Executive Committee of the National Security Council, and they'd be known as XCOM, short for Executive Committee. The members of XCOM gathered in the cabinet room of the White House, and this was one of the rooms where Kennedy had his secret taping system installed. So Kennedy started uh, recordings of their meetings, which is how we know about exactly what was being said. The members of XCOM, who hadn't already been briefed, were shocked to have our fears about nuclear missiles in Cuba confirmed. But there was at least some good news in the fact that the construction work still seemed to be going on at the missile sites, and it didn't look like they were operational, giving us a window of opportunity to act. And they did agree that we needed to act. What courses of action did the members of XCOM recommend? Well, doing nothing and letting the sites go operational was quickly dismissed as a possibility. So they discussed various ideas for things we might do, and three principal courses of action emerged. First, we might conduct airstrikes to destroy the missile sites, and this would need to be a surprise series of bombings because if we gave them warning, that would mean they might move and hide the nukes. So the airstrikes plan uh, precluded any effort to negotiate with the Soviets. Second, we might establish a naval blockade to stop any more ships with missile parts from coming into Cuba. And third, we might initiate a full-scale invasion of the island. This solution was unanimously recommended by the Joint Chiefs of Staff of the American Armed Forces. They wanted an invasion. By the end of this first meeting, President Kennedy had almost decided in favor of bombing the missile bases, but it was recognized that there were several things that could go wrong with the plan. First, we couldn't wait long because we didn't know when the sites would become operational. Second, the airstrikes were unlikely to destroy all the missiles. There would probably still be some remaining. Third, the Soviets might seize West Berlin in retaliation. And fourth, the Soviets might fire missiles that survived and attack the U.S. starting nuclear war. But President Kennedy was still leaning heavily towards airstrikes over blockade or invasion. At 6.30 p.m., XCOM met again, and they discussed both Russia's motives and concerns about what would happen if they conducted airstrikes. In The Cuban Missile Crisis in American History, uh, Sheldon Stern explains... The president admitted to being puzzled by Soviet motives in Cuba. There was some awareness that Khrushchev might be reacting to the presence of U.S. missiles in Turkey and Italy. But no one in the room seriously considered the possibility that he had acted defensively to protect his Cuban ally. The morning meeting had ended with a consensus for the use of force, particularly for a limited airstrike on just the missile sites. During the evening, however, there was a growing awareness of the dangers raised by any military action in Cuba. 
if the U.S. attacked the island nation, especially without warning, where would it end? So they didn't completely understand what Khrushchev was do, why Khrushchev was doing this. And they were starting to have more hesitation about the initial idea of bombing the missile sites, which was a good thing because we didn't know it at the time. But we do know now that the window of opportunity they thought they had had closed. There were operational nuclear missiles already in Cuba, and the Soviets just hadn't finished installing everything yet. So if we began conducting bombing missions, they already had the ability to attack us with nukes. Also, on this day, most of America's military forces were ordered to go to DEFCON 3. What is the DEFCON system, and what does DEFCON 3 mean? DEFCON is short for Defense Readiness Condition, and basically it's an alert system that tells military personnel what state of readiness they need to be in. It's kind of like Yellow Alert and Red Alert on Star Trek. DEFCON has five different readiness conditions, with five being the lowest and one being the highest. DEFCON 5 is represented by the color blue, and it represents a the normal or lowest state of readiness, that is, when there's no crisis underway. DEFCON 4 is represented by the color green, and it represents a state of readiness involving increased intelligence efforts and added security measures. DEFCON 3 is represented by the color yellow, and it represents getting the armed forces ready to fight if they have to. In the case of the Air Force, DEFCON 3 means that they need to be ready to mobilize on 15 minutes' notice. On the first day of the crisis, President Kennedy put all of our forces except those in Europe at DEFCON 3, meaning we were now effectively at yellow alert. DEFCON 2 is represented by the color red. It means that we need to be ready for nuclear war, and our other service branches besides the Air Force need to be ready to be deployed and start fighting within six hours. DEFCON 1 is represented by the color white, and it means that nuclear war is imminent or has already begun. It represents the maximum state of readiness with the armed forces needing to be ready to respond immediately. What state of readiness our forces are at at any particular period of time is often kept confidential. However, these days it seems we are normally at DEFCON 5, which is the lowest level. It appears, though, that during much of the Cold War, we were regularly at DEFCON 4. On a few occasions, including the Cuban Missile Crisis, the 1973 Yom Kippur War, and after the September 11th attacks, we went to DEFCON 3. On the first day of the Cuban Missile Crisis, most of our forces went to DEFCON 3, and we've been at DEFCON 2 at least once, but it appears we've never been at DEFCON 1. So what happened on the second day, Wednesday, October 17th? Today, President Kennedy was away from the White House on a previously scheduled trip to campaign for Democratic candidates in the upcoming midterm elections, which were just three weeks away. So XCOM met without him at 830 in the morning. Sheldon Stern explains. There was still a great deal of uncertainty and vacillation, but support seemed to be coalescing around some combination of airstrikes a blockade, and diplomatic approaches to the USSR. 
Former Secretary of State Dean Acheson, who had been invited to the meeting by the president, insisted on immediate airstrikes to eliminate the nuclear threat and demonstrate American resolve to the Soviets. So some attendees like Dean Acheson were very much in favor of airstrikes, but others weren't so sure and were thinking about a combination approach that could involve a naval naval blockade and diplomatic efforts with the Soviets. What happened on the third day, Thursday, October 18th? Kennedy was back at the White House, and we got new photos of U-2 overflights. These revealed that they not only had medium-range missiles, but intermediate-range ones as well. These had uh, twice the range of the medium-range ones, so they could strike much further into U.S. territory. Basically, with the intermediates, they could hit almost any point in the continental 48 states. And the intermediates could carry much bigger nuclear bombs. We also saw uh, Soviet strategic bombers, which could carry nukes uh, from Cuba to the U.S. This this pushed XCOM back in the direction of taking swift military action. There was less support for airstrikes because surprise bombing raids might be compared to what Japan did to us at Pearl Harbor. And that could harm our position as leader of the free world. We were, you know, trying to hold together a Cold War alliance of free nations against the Soviets and surprise, seemingly unprovoked attacks could make our allies question our leadership. So if you wanted to take military action and it wasn't airstrikes, that would leave you with the invasion option. And XCOM members were seriously considering the possibility of invading Cuba as it was the only way to be sure that we were actually eliminating the threat. Kennedy, however, was concerned that invading Cuba also would not look good to the world. It, you know, wouldn't seem right for a big, powerful nation to be just rashly invading a small, weak one. And Kennedy was particularly concerned about what the Soviets would do in response. Now, the question really is, the president declared, what action we take which lessens the chances of a nuclear exchange, which obviously is the final failure. The president thus broached the idea of a diplomatic solution. Uh, He mentioned the possibility of cutting a deal where we would remove our missiles from Turkey in exchange for the Soviets removing theirs from Cuba. But this was only a tentative suggestion, and people started thinking more seriously about the possibility of establishing a naval blockade around Cuba. XCOM also held a meeting later in the day, but it was in a room that didn't have a secret taping system, so we don't know exactly what was said. However, at midnight, Kennedy did record his thoughts about the meeting. He said there now appeared to be a consensus in favor of the naval blockade. However, there was a problem with this, because if you blockade a nation and stop all supplies from going into it and out of it, that itself is considered an act of war, and the Soviets would then be justified in attacking us. So Kennedy wanted to avoid declaring war on Cuba, either implicitly or explicitly. He wanted to find a way to frame the blockade more narrowly so that it wouldn't give an excuse for immediate war. Also, on this day, President Kennedy hosted Soviet Foreign Affairs Minister Andrei Gromyko in the Oval Office. And Kennedy pressed Gromyko about the Cuban uh, missile issue. But Gromyko said the only things the Soviets had sent Cuba were defensive weapons, ones that were not designed to attack the United States. 
from our U-2 spy plane overflights, Kennedy knew this wasn't true. He knew that Gromyko was lying or that he had been misinformed by his superiors about what was going on in Cuba. Either way, the Soviets were continuing their policy of deception. But Kennedy didn't want to tip our hand about what we knew, so he didn't tell Gromyko about our overflights or what they discovered. What happened on the fourth day, Friday, October 19th? At 9.45 in the morning, President Kennedy met with the Joint Chiefs of Staff. For those who may not be aware, the Joint Chiefs are the heads of the U.S. Armed Forces. It includes the top leaders of the Army, the Navy, the Marines, the Air Force, as well as an overall military head of the Joint Chiefs. By contrast, XCOM was the executive committee of the National Security Council, which is part of the U.S.'s civilian government. Its function is to advise the president on national security and foreign policy matters. But now it was time to brief the military leaders on what the civilian leaders were thinking. The president met with the Joint Chiefs of Staff to reveal his decision to blockade rather than bomb or invade Cuba. He explained that a limited first step might persuade the Soviets not to retaliate in Berlin, reducing the chance of nuclear war. This did not go down well with the Joint Chiefs, who were, to risk a pun, uniformly in support of the invasion option. But Kennedy wasn't ready to endorse that plan. The president insisted that a Soviet nuclear strike on American cities would result in 80 to 100 million casualties. You're talking about the destruction of a country. The point he contended is to avoid, if we can, nuclear war by escalation. We've got to have some degree of control. In 1962, there were 187 million Americans. So if 80 to 100 million of them died, you were talking about the death of half of everyone in the country, not to mention the devastation that all the survivors would have to face. So you were indeed talking about the destruction of a country. Later in the day, President Kennedy left Washington for more campaign work, but the civilian XCOM met again. And afterwards, RFK called his brother to let him know that support for the blockade option had begun to deteriorate, which would tilt things back in the direction of airstrikes or invasion. So Kennedy rushed back to the White House. At this point, the public did not know what was going on. So they weren't aware that there was a Cuban Missile Crisis underway, and thus the White House created a cover story. They lied to the public about why the president suddenly abandoned his campaign trip. They announced that Kennedy was sick, that he had a cold and fever, and that's why he was unexpectedly leaving the campaign trail. What happened on the fifth day, Saturday, October 20th? According to Sheldon Stern, Defense Secretary Robert McNamara endorsed the blockade but admonished the president that there were differences among his advisors. Joint Chiefs of Staff Chairman General Maxwell Taylor insisted that attacking the missiles was less dangerous than allowing the sites to become operational. RFK argued that this might be the last chance to destroy Castro. The president finally made his position clear. A blockade was the least provocative first step. So Kennedy now had clearly supported blockade over the other options. He also again raised the possibility of a diplomatic solution, indicating that if the Soviets raised the issues of our missiles in Turkey, we might need to remove them. He also told his advisor and speechwriter, Ted Sorensen, to draft a speech that he could give to the American public announcing the blockade. 
And he gave orders that the missiles in Turkey were not to be launched without a presidential order, even if the Soviets attacked them. So the field commanders were not to have the liberty to launch, even if they were attacked. He did not want the missiles in Turkey being launched without his direct orders. What happened on the sixth day, Sunday, October 21st? By this day, Kennedy had decided that airstrikes were too risky because they wouldn't destroy all the missiles. So they started discussing how to frame the blockade that the president had decided on. One of the things they came up with in these discussions was a change of name. Uh, They'd use a different term to describe it. Instead of calling it a blockade, they'd call it a quarantine. Now, that wouldn't mean much if it was still conducted like a normal blockade and everything was stopped that was going into or out of Cuba. I mean, people would see through a name change like that in a minute. So they decided to tailor the blockade more narrowly. They decided that they would only stop certain things from going into Cuba, namely offensive weapons equipment. If it wasn't weapons equipment, they wouldn't stop it. And even if it was weapons equipment, they wouldn't stop it if it was defensive in nature. It was weapons equipment that had offensive capabilities that they were concerned about stopping, like surface-to-surface missiles uh, with medium or intermediate range. And the hope was that this distinction would give them enough cover that people would recognize the quarantine of offensive missile equipment as different enough from a blockade that it wouldn't be considered an act of war. It wouldn't justify starting a war over. However, Sheldon Stern explains, The president still feared that Khrushchev might instead rush the missile sites to completion, announce that Soviet rockets will fly if the U.S. attacked Cuba, and move to force the U.S. out of Berlin. Kennedy also recognized that this course of action would put people at our naval base in Guantanamo Bay in danger. Guantanamo Bay is on the island of Cuba, and how we established a naval naval base there is something that we talked about back in episode 151 on Operation Northwoods. Now, the naval servicemen who were stationed there had agreed to take risks on behalf of their commander-in-chief, but they also had wives and children there. And so even though the blockade hadn't been announced to the public... Kennedy also ordered the evacuation of U.S. dependents from the Guantanamo Naval Base within 24 hours. 2,500 military family members were given 15 minutes to pack one bag each before boarding Navy transport ships for Norfolk, Virginia. These uh, 2,500 family members were thus on their way to hopefully greater safety, although if a full-scale nuclear war broke out, at least half of them would still be expected to die, as well as half of everyone else. What happened on the seventh day, Monday, October 22nd? At 11 a.m., President Kennedy met with XCOM to finalize the speech that he would be giving to the American people later in the day to announce the crisis and the naval quarantine of Cuba. They also finalized a letter to Premier Khrushchev uh, that would be handed to the Russian ambassador just before the speech. Around noon, the president asked if his orders from two days earlier had been communicated to our forces in Turkey, you know, Don't launch the Jupiter missiles without a direct presidential order, even if you're attacked. Paul Nitze, the assistant defense secretary, vigorously objected 
to this inquiry, saying that the Joint Chiefs had already issued the instructions, but Kennedy insisted that they go back and check and not simply take the Joint Chief's word that the order had been communicated, meaning that the commander-in-chief did not trust the Joint Chiefs to fully carry out his orders at this point, and he wanted direct confirmation. At 3 p.m., the president met with the National Security Council and the Joint Chiefs of Staff about the quarantine, and he ordered them not to mention to anyone the idea that an invasion had even been discussed. At 5 p.m., the president met with the leaders of the House and Senate to tell them what was happening. And two of the most senior Democrats in the Senate, so people from Kennedy's own party, vigorously objected. Uh, Senator Richard Russell of Georgia and Senator William Fulbright of Arkansas, who respectively chaired the Armed Services Committee and the Foreign Relations Committee, both strongly objected to the blockade idea and insisted on full invasion. But Kennedy didn't comply. And at 7 p.m. Eastern, President Kennedy addressed the American public. Which brings us back to where we started this episode with President Kennedy's speech informing the American public and the world of the crisis that had been underway for a week at this point. In the speech, he called out the Soviets for the lies that they had been telling in keeping with the Maskarovka doctrine, including his uh, meeting with Foreign Minister Andrei Gromyko four days earlier. Only last Thursday, as evidence of this rapid offensive buildup was already in my hand, Soviet Foreign Minister Gromyko told me in my office that he was instructed to make it clear once again, as he said his government had already done, that Soviet assistance to Cuba, and I quote, pursued solely the purpose of contributing to the defense capabilities of Cuba, unquote, that And I quote him, training by Soviet specialists of Cuban nationals in handling defensive armaments was by no means offensive. And that if it were otherwise, Mr. Gromyko went on, the Soviet government would never become involved in rendering such assistance, unquote. That statement also was false. Neither the United States of America nor the world community of nations can tolerate deliberate deception and offensive threats on the part of any nation. Kennedy then outlined a seven-point plan that he had authorized to deal with the situation. I have directed that the following initial steps be taken immediately. First, to halt this offensive buildup, a strict quarantine on all offensive military equipment under shipment to Cuba is being initiated. All ships of any kind bound for Cuba, from whatever nation or port, will, if found to contain cargoes of offensive weapons, be turned back. This quarantine will be extended, if needed, to other types of cargo and carriers. We are not at this time, however, denying the necessities of life, as the Soviets attempted to do in their Berlin blockade of 1948. Second, I have directed the continued and increased close surveillance of Cuba and its military buildup. The foreign ministers of the OAS, in their communique of October 6, rejected secrecy on such matters in this hemisphere. Should these offensive military preparations continue, thus increasing the threat to the hemisphere, further action will be justified. I have directed the armed forces to prepare for any eventualities. And I trust that in the interest of both the Cuban people 
and the Soviet technicians at the sites, the hazards to all concerned of continuing this threat will be recognized. Third, it shall be the policy of this nation to regard any nuclear missile launched from Cuba against any nation in the Western Hemisphere as an attack by the Soviet Union on the United States, requiring a full retaliatory response upon the Soviet Union. Fourth, as a necessary military precaution, I have reinforced our base at Guantanamo, evacuated today the dependence of our personnel there, and ordered additional military units to be on a standby alert basis. Fifth, we are calling tonight for an immediate meeting of the Organization of Consultation under the Organization of American States to consider this threat to hemispheric security and to invoke Article 6 and 8 of the Rio Treaty in support of all necessary action. The United Nations Charter allows for regional security arrangements, and the nations of this hemisphere decided long ago against the military presence of outside powers. Our other allies around the world have also been alerted. Sixth, under the Charter of the United Nations, we are asking tonight that an emergency meeting of the Security Council be convoked without delay to take action against this latest Soviet threat to world peace. Our resolution will call for the prompt dismantling and withdrawal of all offensive weapons in Cuba under the supervision of UN observers before the quarantine can be lifted. Seventh and finally, I call upon Chairman Khrushchev to halt and eliminate this clandestine, reckless, and provocative threat to world peace and to stable relations between our two nations. I call upon him further to abandon this course of world domination and to join in an historic effort to end the perilous arms race and to transform the history of man. He has an opportunity now to move the world back from the abyss of destruction by returning to his government's own words that it had no need to station missiles outside its own territory and withdrawing these weapons from Cuba by refraining from any action which will widen or deepen the present crisis and then by participating in a search for peaceful and permanent solutions. So the to boil all that down, the seven points of the Kennedy plan were, one, he announced authorization of the naval quarantine of Cuba, which he stressed was not cutting off the necessities of life like the Soviet blockade of West Berlin had. Two, he had stepped up the surveillance of what was happening in Cuba and directed the armed forces to prepare for any eventualities, meaning get ready for nuclear war. Three, he announced a policy under which a launch of any nuclear missile from Cuba against any Western nation was going to be considered an attack on the United States that would require us to retaliate against the Soviet Union. Uh, Fourth, he reinforced the American base at Guantanamo Bay in Cuba and evacuated the wives and children of the servicemen there. Fifth, he called for a meeting of the Organization of American States to discuss the situation and authorize all necessary actions. Sixth, he called for a meeting of the U.N. Security Council to take action and require that the missiles be dismantled and removed as verified by U.N. observers 
before the quarantine can be lifted. And seventh, he made a personal appeal to Premier Khrushchev to end the arms race and step back from the abyss of destruction. The president also gave warning to the American people about how dangerous the situation was, stating that he expected it to last for months, and no one could say how many casualties would result. My fellow citizens, let no one doubt that this is a difficult and dangerous effort on which we have set out. No one can foresee precisely what course it will take or what course or casualties will be incurred. Many months of sacrifice and self-discipline lie ahead, months in which both our patience and our will will be tested, months in which many threats and denunciations will keep us aware of our dangers. But the greatest danger of all would be to do nothing. In later years, Kennedy speechwriter Ted Sorensen said that this was Kennedy's most important speech historically in terms of its impact on our planet. During the speech, a directive went out to the armed forces ordering all of them to DEFCON 3. Most of them had already been at this since the first day of the crisis, but not those in Europe. And now our European forces were on DEFCON 3 as well. The public didn't know about the DEFCON status, but they did know about the crisis now. How did they react to President Kennedy's speech? This was the first that the public heard of the crisis, which had already been going on in private for a week, and naturally, people freaked out. Needless to say, the rate of prayer and confessions immediately and dramatically jumped in American churches, with all kinds of prayer services being held over the next, next few days and lines stretching around the block to go to confession. What happened on the eighth day, Tuesday, October 23rd? In the morning, the president met with XCOM and learned that some people around the world were doubting whether the missiles really existed. So he authorized our ambassador to the United Nations, Adelaide Stevenson, to reveal some of the U-2 spy plane photos at a debate. The U.N. was scheduled uh, to hold in just a couple days time to show the world that we weren't just making this up. After the president left the XCOM meeting, Secretary of State Dean Rusk arrived with news from the Organization of American States, or OAS. Um, The Organization of American States is an umbrella organization. It's an alliance that includes almost everybody in North and South America. And Rusk arrived with the news that our diplomatic efforts were bearing fruit, and the OAS was going to vote unanimously to endorse the naval quarantine of Cuba. Rusk also observed that it was a good sign that the Soviets hadn't flown off the handle and nuked us overnight after Kennedy's speech announcing the blockade. XCOM met again at 6 p.m., and there was a a big debate about whether the Navy should stop and search Soviet ships that turned around before reaching the quarantine line. Kennedy expressed concern that if we did that, the crews of the Soviet ships might resist, violence might break out, and people on both sides could be killed. Later in the evening, Sheldon Stern explains, Shortly after the conclusion of the 6 p.m. meeting, the president and his brother, Bobby, talked alone in the Oval Office. It looks like it's going to be real mean, doesn't it, JFK declared. If they get this mean on this one, expletive deleted. What are they going to expletive deleted next? There wasn't any choice, RFK responded. I mean, you would have been impeached. Well, that's what I think, JFK replied. 
So, Jimmy, what happened on the ninth day, Wednesday, October 24th? Accounts differ on exactly what day this happened, but some accounts indicate it was Wednesday the 24th. But an order went out putting part of our armed forces, uh, NATO's Strategic Air Command, on DEFCON 2, the next step before nuclear war. This was apparently the first time a DEFCON 2 order had ever been given. And among other things, it meant getting the nuclear warheads on our missiles ready for arming and launch. It also meant getting our nuclear armed airplanes up there to continually circle and ready to uh, strike and bomb targets. This may be the only time we've been at DEFCON 2, though reports on that differ. Surprisingly, some accounts indicate that the Soviets did not respond by going to a higher alert status to get their planes in the air. These accounts hold that they just froze in place, presumably out of a desire not to further escalate the situation. When XCOM met met in the morning, they got word that six Soviet ships that had been approaching the quarantine line had turned around. JFK ordered that they not be stopped or harassed in any way. Despite this, later in the day, Premier Khrushchev uh, publicly issued a telegram to Kennedy stating that he viewed the, the blockade as an act of aggression and would instruct their ships to ignore it which was weird since six ships had already turned around earlier in the day. But this was part of the confusion at the time. Communications with Russia were uncertain. Um, It appeared that Khrushchev was rushing out statements, repeating himself, and without even having the messages edited first. And we weren't fully sure whether Khrushchev was always writing what he really thought or whether he was being pressured to say certain things by hardliners in his own government or military. Meanwhile, the U.S. sent a cable to our ambassador in Turkey, instructing him to notify Turkish uh, Turkish officials that we were thinking about removing the Jupiter missiles in their country and in Italy to get the Soviet missiles out of Cuba. In part, this was because the Jupiter missiles were regarded as older and nearly obsolete as a model. But to the Turks, they represented something keeping their nation safe from Soviet aggression. And the Turks sent back a message saying they would deeply resent it if the missiles were removed. By that afternoon, the president was also shown photos revealing that the Soviets had been trying to camouflage the missile sites during the night, and Kennedy authorized that these photos be given to the press to show the Soviet attempted deception. At 5 p.m., the president again met with the leaders of Congress, and at 6 p.m., he met with a group of advisors, including former Secretary of Defense Robert Lovett. Lovett agreed to the blockade because it gave the Soviets time to think about what they would do. There also was discussion of involving the United Nations in efforts to verify what was happening in Cuba. And Kennedy agreed that if we were able to reach a deal, UN observers would need to verify that work on the missile sites had stopped and that no missiles were on the launchers. Also on this day, Pope John XXIII sent a message to the Kremlin in which he stated, We beg all governments not to remain deaf to this cry of humanity, that they do all that is in their power to save peace. And six months after the crisis, he would release his last encyclical, Pacem in Terras, which is Latin for peace on earth. In the encyclical, he discussed international relations and world peace, and he supported nuclear non-proliferation efforts, meaning stopping the spread of nuclear weapons to additional countries that didn't have them yet. What happened on the 10th day, Thursday, October 25th? 
At 7.15 in the morning, a Soviet ship challenged the quarantine. Two of our ships tried to catch it, but failed. However, it was a tanker, and they were pretty sure that it didn't have any military material on board, so they allowed it through. And we got word that more ships bound for Cuba, which presumably were carrying offensive weapons materials, had turned back. Ambassador Adlai Stevenson also gave a presentation at the UN in which he revealed aerial spy photos showing uh, missile sites to prove what the Soviets were doing. In the evening, XCOM met and new intelligence indicated the Soviets were working really quickly to complete the missile sites. In response, President Kennedy authorized loading nuclear weapons aboard the planes of the Strategic Air Command in Europe. These planes would have the responsibility of conducting first-strike bombing missions inside the Soviet Union. Robert Kennedy recommended that we should bomb a missile site in Cuba as a first step to show the Soviets we were serious. It should be noted that this is not what Robert F. Kennedy reported in his book, 13 Days. In the book, he portrayed himself as as advocating a moderate stance that did not recommend an attack or invasion. However, the secret Kennedy tapes reveal that RFK was lying about this. He did recommend attacking by air, though the president had decided four days earlier not to conduct airstrikes, he was now willing to consider the idea if it would prevent the Soviets from finishing work on the sites. What happened on the 11th day, Friday, October 26th? At 10 in the morning, Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara announced that the Navy had boarded a freighter the Soviets had chartered from Lebanon, which was deemed relatively safe to board without starting a fight. And after boarding it, the ship was found not to have offensive weapons material on board, and it was cleared to go through the quarantine. XCOM also discussed a plan that had been proposed by the Secretary General of the United Nations, a Burmese national named Uthant. He had proposed ending the quarantine in exchange for stopping weapons shipments to Cuba. But this plan ran into harsh criticism in XCOM because it didn't guarantee making the missile sites inoperable, just stopping new ones from coming in. That afternoon, President Kennedy met with CIA Director John McCone, who showed him new photos revealing just how quickly the Soviets were completing work on the bases. McCone also said an invasion would be difficult because, in his words, very lethal stuff was in Cuba. When Kennedy asked McCone what course of action he would recommend, McCone said we should quickly perform an airstrike before the bases were complete. That evening, a secret telegram from Khrushchev arrived at the at the White House. It was long, emotional, and rambling. In it, Khrushchev tried to convince Kennedy that the missiles in Cuba were defensive rather than offensive in nature, that the Soviet Union only supplied them to the Cuban government because they asked for them, and that they gave them for humanitarian reasons to protect Cuba from being invaded, either directly by the United States or indirectly through other forces, as in the Bay of Pigs invasion. Here's part of what the telegram said to give you a sense of what Premier Khrushchev was saying. Mr. President, do you really seriously think that Cuba can attack the United States and that even we together with Cuba can attack you from the territory of Cuba? Can you really think that way? How is it possible? We do not understand this. Has something so new appeared in military strategy that one can think that it is possible to attack thus? I say precisely attack and not destroy, since barbarians, people who have lost their sense, destroy. I believe that you have no basis to think this way. 
You can regard us with distrust, but in any case, you can be calm in this regard, that we are of sound mind and understand perfectly well that if we attack you, you will respond the same way. But you too will receive the same that you hurl against us, and I think that you also understand this. My conversation with you in Vienna gives me the right to talk to you this way. This indicates that we are normal people, that we correctly understand and correctly evaluate the situation. Only lunatics or suicides who themselves want to perish and to destroy the whole world before they die could do this. We, however, want to live and do not at all want to destroy your country. We want something quite different, to compete with your country on a peaceful basis. We quarrel with you, we have differences on ideological questions, but our view of the world consists in this, that ideological questions, as well as economic problems, should be solved not by military means, they must be solved on the basis of peaceful competition. That is, as this is understood in capitalist society, on the basis of competition. You have now proclaimed piratical measures which were employed in the Middle Ages when ships proceeding in international waters were attacked, and you have called this a quarantine around Cuba. Our vessels apparently will soon enter the zone which your navy is patrolling. I assure you that these vessels now bound for Cuba are carrying the most innocent, peaceful cargoes. Do you really think that we only occupy ourselves with the carriage of so-called offensive weapons, atomic and hydrogen bombs? Although perhaps your military people imagine that these cargoes are some sort of special type of weapon, I assure you that they are the most ordinary, peaceful products. The weapons which were necessary for the defense of Cuba are already there. I do not want to say that there were not any shipments of weapons at all. No, there were such shipments. But now Cuba has already received the necessary means of defense. And he went on like this quite a bit. The letter is almost 3,000 words long. However, in the course of it, he got around to making a concrete proposal. If assurances were given by the president and the government of the United States that the USA itself would not participate in an attack on Cuba and would restrain others from actions of this sort, if you would recall your fleet, this would immediately change everything. I'm not speaking for Fidel Castro, but I think that he and the government of Cuba, evidently, would declare demobilization and would appeal to the people to get down to peaceful labor. Then, too, the question of armaments would disappear, since if there is no threat, then armaments are a burden for every people. Then, too, the question of the destruction not only of the armaments, which you call offensive, but of all other armaments as well, would look different. Let us, therefore, show statesmanlike wisdom. I propose. We, for our part, will declare that our ships bound for Cuba will not carry any kind of armaments. You would declare that the United States will not invade Cuba with its forces and will not support any sort of forces which might intend to carry out an invasion of Cuba. Then the necessity for the presence of our military specialists in Cuba would disappear. So now there was a proposal for a diplomatic solution. If the U.S. promises not to invade Cuba, and not to support others in doing so, like at the Bay of Pigs, and calls off the quarantine, then the USSR will pull its military specialists out of Cuba, and they won't need their weapons there anymore, so they'll get rid of them, and they won't ship any more weapons to Cuba in the future. Premier Khrushchev concluded with an appeal. Mr. President, I appeal to you to weigh well what the aggressive piratical actions which you have declared the USA intends to carry out in international waters would lead to. 
You yourself know that any sensible man simply cannot agree with this, cannot recognize your right to such actions. If you did this as the first step towards the unleashing of war, well then, it is evident that nothing else is left to us but to accept this challenge of yours. If, however, you have not lost your self-control and sensibly conceive what this might lead to, then, Mr. President, we and you ought not now to pull on the ends of the rope in which you have tied the knot of war, because the more the two of us pull, the tighter that knot will be tied. And a moment may come when that knot will be tied so tight that even he who tied it will not have the strength to untie it, and then it will be necessary to cut that knot. And what that would mean is not for me to explain to you, because you yourself understand perfectly of what terrible forces our countries dispose. Consequently, if there is no intention to tighten that knot and thereby to doom the world to the cat catastrophe of thermonuclear war, then let us not only relax the forces pulling on the ends of the rope, let us take measures to untie that knot. We are ready for this. We welcome all forces which stand on positions of peace. There, Mr. President, are my thoughts, which, if you agreed with them, could put an end to the tense situation which is disturbing all peoples. These thoughts are dictated by a sincere desire to relieve the situation, to remove the threat of war. So this was a welcome development, but the crisis wasn't over and there would be new complications. While Khrushchev was recommending a peaceful solution, Fidel Castro was recommending something very different. The same day, Castro sent Khrushchev a telegram in secret. It has become known as the Armageddon Letter, and it said, Dear Comrade Khrushchev, Given the analysis of the situation and the reports which have reached us, I consider an attack to be almost imminent within the next 24 to 72 hours. You can be sure that we will resist with determination with whatever the case. The Cuban people's morale is extremely high, and the people will confront aggression heroically. I would like to briefly express my own personal opinion. If the imperialists invade Cuba with the aim of occupying it, the dangers of their aggressive policy are so great that after such an invasion, the Soviet Union must never allow circumstances in which the imperialists could carry out a nuclear first strike against it. I tell you this because I believe that the imperialist aggressiveness makes them extremely dangerous, and that if they manage to carry out an invasion of Cuba, a brutal act in violation of universal and moral law, then that would be the moment to eliminate this danger forever, in an act of the most legitimate self-defense. However harsh and terrible the solution, there would be no other. In context, the harsh and terrible solution Castro recommends is a nuclear first strike to prevent the U.S. from being able to carry out a first strike on the Soviet Union. So he's saying that if, as he expects, the U.S. invades Cuba in the next 24 to 72 hours, Khrushchev should launch a nuclear first strike on the United States, triggering nuclear war. However, Khrushchev understood the Armageddon letter a bit differently. For his memoirs, he wrote that he understood Castro to be saying that an American invasion was just about to happen, and so Castro wanted to preempt the invasion of Cuba by making a nuclear first strike on the U.S. Later, Castro claimed that part of his letter had been mistranslated into Russian, which would be understandable as Castro apparently dictated the letter in Spanish to the Soviet ambassador who was holed up in the bomb shelter of the Soviet embassy in Havana and was translating into Russian on the fly. 
Castro said that he was proposing that if the U.S. invaded Cuba, then the Soviets would need to defend itself by nuclear means. But the Armageddon letter wasn't the only alarming development. Much worse ones were about to happen. President Kennedy had been briefed a year earlier that a nuclear war would likely kill a third of humanity, with most of the deaths centered in America, Europe, the Soviet Union, and China. And the next day, October 27th, a Saturday, the situation would get much worse. It would be the worst day of the crisis. The White House would later dub it Black Saturday. And we almost went to nuclear war on that day three times. So that's what we'll talk about next week. (laughs) What a cliffhanger. So, Jimmy, what do we have for further resources while folks wait for next week? We'll have uh, Sheldon Stern's book, The Cuban Missile Crisis in American Mystery, which is based on the secret recordings. Also, Robert Kennedy's book, 13 Days, the movie that came out in the year 2000, 13 Days, which I like. Um, Also, the 1964 Dr. Strangelove or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb, which is a dark comedy about a nuclear crisis like this. Also, we'll have links to episode 12 on the dead hand or perimeter, the Soviet doomsday machine. The Kennedy Library's archive of material on the Cuban Missile Crisis, which is multimedia. They have text and pictures and and sound recordings and stuff. Also, the online archives of the secret White House tapes covering JFK, LBJ, and RMN, Richard Milhouse Nixon. Also, information about the DEFCON system, October 26th secret Khrushchev telegram, and October 26th Castro telegram to Khrushchev, the Armageddon letter. Excellent. Hey, and if you ever get to Boston, definitely people should check out the Kennedy Library. There's lots of really interesting displays and information there about the whole Kennedy uh, time, but especially the Cuban Missile Crisis. So, Jimmy, what do we have for mysterious headlines this week? Well, we have a theme of putting putting people inside of things in order to protect them. And so the first one is a link to a start to an article that actually came out a couple of years ago about how artificial wombs can change the abortion debate, because um, I've said for years that um, it that it's only a matter of time until we have artificial wombs capable of caring for children from conception forward. Um, we we already have essentially artificial wombs. That's what an incubator is. Incubators are Mark I artificial wombs because the child is not re- yet ready to live without that kind of protection. And so you put them in an incubator. Well, uh, now, uh, some scientists have developed an artificial womb for lambs. And it's kind of it's interesting to look at. It's kind of like a bag of fluid that you put the lamb in, but it keeps the lamb warm and and does the stuff it needs to. So you can read about that. And the article uh, then conjectures how this can change the U.S. abortion uh, controversy. And it, it it's a it's a nice exploration of that. So check that out. Also, um, you know, Iron Man is inside of a suit that protects him. And he's got those uh, jets, you know, that he uses to fly around and rescue people. Well, okay, we'll also have a link on Iron Man-like jet suits coming to the rescue because there have now been first responders who are starting to be trained with um, with 
jet pack or jet suits. Uh, they don't have the armor on them yet, but um, but they're making a direction. They're making a step in that direction. So they're a little bit like they're to help people fly in and rescue others. So they're a little bit like Mark One Iron Man suits. Wow. All right. So that's it from us. We would love to hear your theories so far, as we've discussed about the Cuban Missile Crisis that almost led to nuclear war in 1962 and how close we came to nuclear war. You can let us know by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World Facebook page. You can send an email to mysterious at sqpn.com. Send a tweet to at mys underscore world. You can join the StarQuest Discord community at sqpn.com slash discord or call our mysterious feedback line at 619-738- Four five one five. That's six one nine seven three eight four five one five. And I want to say a special word of thanks to Oasis Studio 7 for all the video and animation work they do on Mysterious World. They do a really great job. We continue to get uh, great feedback every week about how much people are liking what they're doing. So to see it for yourself, go to youtube.com slash Jimmy Aiken. That's my YouTube channel where I post Mysterious World videos as well as others. And while you're there, uh, be sure and subscribe and hit the bell notification so that you'll always get a notification whenever I have a new video, whether it's Mysterious World or something else. So, Jimmy, what will we be talking about next time? Next week, as promised, we'll be telling you the story of Black Saturday and how nuclear war almost started three times in one day. Folks, be sure to get your very own Mysterious World t-shirt, mug, and more in our merchandise shop at sqpn.com slash merch. You can find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion and links to the mysterious headlines on our show notes at sqpn.com slash mysterious. And remember, to help us continue to produce the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World is also brought to you by Fairvento Law PLLC, now assisting clients with expungements and set-asides of Michigan convictions. To learn more, call 231-202-3321 or go to fearventolaw.com, F-I-O-R-V-E-N-T-O law.com. And by Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World is also brought to you by Deliver Contacts, offering honest pricing and reliable service for all your contact lens needs. See the difference at DeliverContacts.com. Until next time, Jimmy Yakin, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Tom. And once again, I'm Dom Bethanelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Yakin's Mysterious World on StarQuest. If you've enjoyed Jimmy Yakin's Mysterious World, you'll also enjoy another StarQuest Network show, Let's Science. Find it wherever you can find podcasts or at sqpn.com slash science.